Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Nathan Moore, your host on the New Books Network. Today, we will be interviewing Helen Paul and Paul Crosswaite about their new book, Invested, How Three Centuries of Stock Market Advice Reshaped Our Money, Markets, and Minds, out of the University of Chicago Press. Welcome to the show, Helen and Paul. Thank you very much. Hi there, Nathan. Thanks very much for having us. You're welcome. Firstly, can you give the New Books Network a rundown of how all of the authors contributed to Invested? We only have two of you here with us. Well, there were five authors in total. So you have two people who are really literary scholars and you have people who are more on the history side or the economic history side. But basically, all five of us took a tranche of work and then we wrote and rewrote and redrafted and so that the whole book is seamless. So you can't really tell who wrote which bit unless you know us. Yeah, that's right, Helen. And um, I guess the, the three of us who are the sort of literary people uh, would be myself uh, and uh, Peter Knight and Nikki Marsh. Um, we're all kind of literary cum cultural studies scholars with a particular emphasis on the United States. And then, of course, you yourself, Helen, and uh, James Taylor are um, historians with a, with a particular orientation towards economic and business history, aren't you? That's right. Would you guys mind going further into your academic backgrounds? Certainly. Uh, I'm an economic historian. I work in an economics department. So I actually do a lot of work that's really to do with the history of economic thought or how economic and business history actually operated and also financial history. Rather than working in a, a mainstream history department myself, I tend to be much more on the economic side of things. And uh, as I just mentioned, I am a literary scholar by uh, training, but over the past decade or so, I've become very interested in the intersections of literature and culture with finance and economics. This kind of interdisciplinary field uh, that's sometimes called the new economic criticism, Uh, more recently it's begun to be referred to as the economic humanities. Uh, thinking about the ways in which the kinds of narrative forms, forms of uh, figurative language, the use of rhetoric and discourse, all of these things that are the typical focus of a literary scholar, how we might also think about the operation of those kinds of uh, textual, discursive aspects in uh, the economics field as well. Uh, so that's that's uh, kind of how I in a somewhat improbable way as a, a literary person, ended up writing or co-writing a book about uh, stock market investment manuals. So when does our three centuries of financial advice begin and end for you? We really start with the creation of the stock market advice manual, or maybe even a little, little bit before that. So you have somebody called Thomas Mortimer, who writes his book, his guide to how to go into the stock market. 
And that's published in the mid 18th century. But actually, that comes out of earlier forms that are to do with all kinds of different publications to help people understand money, understand finance, understand the market. So I would say the stock market itself emerges in England after it's firstly appeared in its modern form in the Netherlands. And then only a few decades later, do you get somebody having the bright idea to write about it in a coherent way as a guide to someone who doesn't know the market themselves. And do you guys write about popular financial advice, the type you would normally get from, say, a person like David Ramsey, Jim Cramer, or Susie Orman? How far back does advice literature go? Yeah, that's exactly the kind of advice that we're thinking about. So I guess if I could say something about the, the genesis of this project, where it came from, what initially intrigued us, I suppose it was exactly the kind of ubiquity of books by exactly those kinds of authors that you've mentioned, these kind of superstar financial guru figures, the ubiquity of books by those kinds of people in, let's say, um, the bookstore at an airport, the kind of books that you might pick up on a whim um, because it's got a kind of eye-catching title that seems to promise uh, insight into the glamorous world of the, the stock market and the um, opportunities presented by stock market investment. So these books are very prevalent, very visible, very popular, very successful, very widely consumed. And I guess we had a few questions arising from that. Um, what accounts for that popularity in the, in the contemporary moment? And where do they come from? So there, there are long-standing questions around the efficacy of such books. Do they work? Now, many academic finance scholars would strongly question the extent to which the kinds of systems or schemes or techniques or strategies that many popular financial advice books tout, they would question how effective they actually are. But it remains the case, nevertheless, that they are hugely popular. They continue to be published in huge numbers and continue to be widely consumed. So there was a question there about what accounts for the popularity of these books if their efficacy is, 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 is cast into question by kind of empirical studies. But also, where did they come from? They seem to be a very recognisable genre. They seem to be very visible and very present. I think everybody kind of understands the sort of book we're talking about. What's their history? Where did they come from? How long have they been around? What changing forms have they taken? And as Helen was just suggesting, what we gradually discovered as we delved into this history was that it's a very long history. It goes back at least to the 18th century with kind of precursors um, even beyond that. Um, and it's a history that shows remarkable kind of continuities. There are certain forms of advice and certain kind of rhetorical modes from the 18th century that you can still recognise today, even as there have been huge changes, obviously reflecting enormous changes in uh, investment and in the stock market itself. But it is exactly that that popular mode of advice targeted at the amateur, the non-professional investor who imagines themselves trying their hand 
at uh, speculating in the stock market that we wanted to understand. And can you juxtapose elite versus peasant society in these early years? Who was doing most of the trading? Well, it's certainly a very class-ridden society. And you can see different types of people within the market. So you can see the great aristocratic figures. They leave a lot of their account books behind them and their letters. So they're a lot easier to track than some of the other people. But actually, we know from institutional records like the Bank of England's records, because the bank, although it's now a central bank, was actually a private bank when it started out. And it was something that issued shares. So we know from work that's been done looking at the ledgers, there are all kinds of people involved. There were female investors, there were servants who invested. Basically, there was nothing to stop you from walking up to someone who was a stock jobber or a broker and buying from them. And they would be easily available to you, often in the coffee houses of what was called Exchange Alley, which is a network of alleys just over the road from where the Bank of England is and the Royal Exchange is. This is easy to see how you can get into those alleyways. As to who does most of the trading, it's not as clear. Uh, do we mean people who are buying a large amount of financial instruments and just keeping them, buying and holding them? Or do we mean people who are going to be buying and selling them a lot? And in terms of who's active in that way, it would be these new brokers who were appearing. And they actually are some of the early producers of price data, which they use to try to advertise themselves, their own broker services to potential customers. When was the financial revolution? And is it something we should teach in our history books or do we do that already? It really depends which history book you're going to look at. In broad brush, the financial revolution is often simplified to be the founding of the Bank of England, the creation of the stock market, and the transfer from a royal debt to a national debt. But in reality, economic historians think that that's just an oversimplification, that you have decades upon decades of changes. And what's really interesting is often they're made as short-term workarounds to a problem that then become embedded in the system. You can go all the way back to into the 17th century and looking at things like the Stuart Kings and then their replacement, Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell and his period of a republic. And then the restoration, you have the move towards the arrival of William of Orange, who's a Dutchman and who brings some Dutch courtiers and financial practices with him. But some people have argued the word revolution is much more of, a, of an evolution. Whether you want to teach that in history books, I suppose it depends what level you're going to be teaching at. I'm not sure whether small children want to know about this, but I certainly think that a lot of adults would find it very interesting. 
And what about financial collapses or failures? How are financial collapses or failures depicted in your work invested? So the phenomenon of panics, crises, crashes, financial collapses are really crucial to the narrative that we try to tell in the story uh, within this book because they often present huge challenges for authors of investment advice uh, texts. They're challenges because very often the writers don't show any sign of having seen them coming. And what's more, the most severe crises often seem to exceed the limits of possibility that were accounted for in the models that investment advice uh, writers had uh, developed. So we consider a variety of crises in the book, um, in the period that Helen's most familiar with and has just been discussing, uh, the kind of 18th century period of finance. There's the infamous, uh, infamous South Sea bubble in the city of London in 1720. There's the railway mania in, in the United Kingdom of the 1840s, which culminates in a juddering crash. And um, probably most famously of all, there's the 1929 Great Crash on Wall Street, which I guess functions as the most significant case study for us in thinking about how crisis figures within the genre of stock market investment writing. And it's a really significant event because in some ways it is a huge blow to the legitimacy, to the authority, to the credibility of writers like, for example, the Yale economist Irving Fisher, who was an academic and in many ways kind of leveraged that academic reputation and prestige to become a kind of popular pundit who was extremely widely read and cited in in the mainstream media and in uh, mainstream uh, books for a popular audience. He famously declared very shortly before the clash that prices had reached a permanently high plateau, um, only to be disproved by the uh, crash which occurred shortly afterwards. So there were ways in which the Great Crash of 1929 seemed to uh, leave some important financial commentators red-faced. It was a particularly significant blow to a subset of this genre of writing known as technical analysis, which in a nutshell is a way of trying to predict the movement of stock prices by tracking patterns in the previous earlier movements of prices. So you try to detect a recognisable pattern in the price data, which gives you a signal as to what's going to happen next. Now, technical analysis was very popular in the 1920s, but it was premised on the idea that when stock prices started to go down, they would relatively quickly reach some kind of resistance point. There was some kind of structure built into prices such that once they fell to a certain degree, they would bounce back. There was this kind of resistance, there was this kind of springiness. In the fall of 1929, on the contrary, prices fell and they just kept falling and they fell through every resistance point that any technical analyst could point to. All of which might one might think have put paid to the genre pretty much as a whole. 
Somewhat ironically, though, it was actually the 1930s that was the real heyday, both of technical analysis, a huge number of massive tomes in the field appeared, all in many ways premised on the idea both that the technical analysts had in fact given a model that did predict the crash, which was somewhat debatable, and moreover, that the techniques that they were using, the ways that they had of trying to understand crowd psychology, the way in which speculative booms and and busts operate, that all of these techniques actually made them perfectly placed to explain the crash and to explain its aftermath. So technical analysis had a kind of heyday, but it was also this post-crash period, the one in which what's called fundamental analysis really came into its own. This is a mode of analysis that rather than looking to the movements of stock prices itself, themselves, looks to the underlying fundamental value of a particular company, looks um, at its profit and loss, uh, looks at all of its corporate disclosures, tries to work out what its underlying soundness is. And there was a way in which in the 1930s, there was a sense that you had to go back to fundamentals, that this speculative boom had just been based purely on kind of irrational exuberance. And on the contrary, now you had to look at the fundamental underlying soundness of companies. So a kind of prudent, conservative, common sense kind of notion of investment, uh, which was another way in which this genre was able to make the case that actually far from having been rendered irrelevant or um, uh, unreliable by the crash, the crash was actually the thing that had brought it into its own and, 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 and given it a new importance and, and a new uh, authority and force. So we, we were particularly interested in the 1929 crash as a kind of case study for how crisis can threaten the credibility of this genre, but also perhaps paradoxically or, or, or ironically be kind of mobilised by the genre um, as a way of, of establishing itself as something that can explain what happened tell you how to navigate it, tell you how to survive it, and tell you how to come out the other side um, with a profit. In Chapter 5, you include black stockbrokers of the 1960s. What should we know more about this period in stock market history? Yeah, this is a really important moment in a longer story that the book tries to tell, which in many ways, is a kind of story of absence, or at least partial absence. Absence, at least, in the way in which black investors are addressed, or rather not addressed, in the genre of investment advice writing. We know that there have been black investors in the United States for a very considerable period of time, that in the 1920s, again, there was a significant increase in African-American participation in the securities markets. There were several very celebrated black speculators in New York and Chicago who became widely popular figures in the black press and amongst black communities in Harlem or on the south side of Chicago. So there have been these, these periods in which Black participation in the stock market was significant and high profile. All the time, though, the genre of investment advice writing, uh, almost exclusively 
for much of its history at least, white-authored genre, has neglected black investors and, and has even seemed to um, discard the very possibility of um, racial diversity in the stock market. So it's a highly white-coded uh, genre. This, though, does significantly begin to change in the mid-20th century. And the 1960s is a key moment as a kind of corollary of the civil rights developments of the period. There is a move, on the one hand, for an increasing number of uh, black-owned and staffed financial institutions to open in and around Wall Street, and at the same time, for long-established and almost exclusively white institutions, Merrill Lynch, for example, to begin to recruit, albeit initially in very small numbers, but to begin to recruit African-American brokers and uh, other financial professionals. So it's a moment in which there's an increasing, again, still very limited, but increasing visibility for black financial professionals. And this is finally recognised in significant ways by the print culture that we're interested in. So our book is kind of simultaneously tracking developments in the stock market itself, who's participating, the demographics of the stock market, and how that's reflected or often not properly reflected in the literature, the advice literature that's written about the market. Um, And this period, uh, specifically 1970, sees the appearance of a really key periodical uh, black enterprise, which is this new kind of business finance orientated publication that, as its title suggests, has a particular focus on and orientation towards black entrepreneurialism, black capitalism, uh, uh, African-American participation in um, the professional and business world. And that's a really key publication in reinforcing a sense of of an emerging generation of African-American financial professionals who are now playing an increasingly significant role in the field. And so this is a, we could see this is a moment at which the print culture begins to catch up with the changing demographics of the market itself. And we see something quite similar with, in, in the case of gender as well, one of the other strands that the book tracks is the increasing and and at times extremely prevalent presence of women investors in the stock market and a similar way in which the presence of these investors in the market is often neglected or denigrated by the authors of of, of the advice literature whom we might think would be seeking to target and court this this audience, but often are either ignoring them completely or um, otherwise downplaying their capabilities uh, or their um, legitimate right to participate in the market. Um, And this gradually shifts through the 20th century as well. There is an, an increasing recognition of the presence and the importance of women investors in the market and again slowly but eventually emerging a recognition of this in the print culture as well in magazines in newspapers uh, and in uh, investment advice guides specifically targeting a a female audience 
But one of the things we're really interested in is this kind of incongruity often between the the, the presence of women or um, uh, racial or ethnic minorities in the market that they are participating, albeit sometimes in small numbers, and the way in which this is often ignored or downplayed um, by the print culture that accompanies it, revealing, I think, often the kind of ideological underpinnings of that culture and of the kind of texts that are being produced, that they have a sense of who belongs in the market or who who are the correct people to be participating in the market. And if, the, and if from their point of view, the wrong people are there, then they're going to act as if they're not there. And they're going to write as if these groups are, 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 are not part of the kind of purview of what they're trying to describe. So these books can be really interesting in revealing the kind of ideological thinking that underpins um, a lot of uh, how the, um, the financial markets are conceived of. Railway was a good investment, but what were some other generally safe investments that we can learn from today? Well, as Paul was mentioning, sometimes railways were good investments, and at other times there was a speculative boom, and people started building railways that weren't going to be finished and weren't going to be particularly good and sometimes people lost money on them. So it's not necessarily a particular sector like transport infrastructure that you want to think about, but also a diversified portfolio. So if you do buy a share in a company and something happens, you have other shares in other companies. The idea is if you think about how these things operate together, hopefully you construct a portfolio that means that some of your investments will pay off. Even if you lose money on one or two of them, some of them will keep going. So that's one thing. Another thing is to consider a buy and hold strategy, not trying to play the market. And this is what our earliest figure in this genre, Thomas Mortimer, tells people to do. He says, you know, invest in very safe investments and buy and hold. We might not want to be quite so safe. We might want a few riskier investments if they are well constructed into the portfolio. So for example, if their payoffs are not really correlated with the payoffs of your other investments. So you've got your diversification. But Thomas Mortimer was very clear, you shouldn't be tricked into just continually chasing short-term gains because there are transaction costs in what you do. You have to pay brokers. And I suppose the general theme is often don't try to outplay the experts. By the time you hear about something, they will already have heard of it themselves. If you look at the various scandals and bubbles and problems, you always see people that economists call noise traders, that is naive investors, rushing in because they've heard about something and they don't want to miss out. And they are exactly the kind of people who get burned. Is the market still evolving in ways that you have or haven't shared in invested Tell the New Books Network what they have been missing or 
should look out for in the future? One of the most important developments that we trace in the latter part of the book is the increasing emphasis of writers of investment advice on the advisability of having a very passive approach to the stock market. So essentially to buy an index fund, to buy a set of, as Helen has just been describing, very diversified, very kind of carefully spread stock holdings uh, that have been assembled by um, a uh, professional fund, to buy that and hold it and just simply to adopt the most kind of passive strategy possible. So you aren't choosing the stocks yourself, you're not actively trading the stocks, you're precisely not a day trader, you're not sitting in front of your computer day in, day out, watching the ups and downs of your portfolio and adjusting it continually in light of the changing conditions of the market. On the contrary, you buy an index fund and you just kind of sit back and let the market do its work and it will go up and it will go down but over time it will be a rewarding um, profitable investment. Now this again presents a bit of a puzzle because if that's the advice I mean that advice can be given in a couple of minutes. Why therefore would you need a 300, 400 page investment advice guide whose advice can basically be boiled down to buy an index fund, do nothing. This is another of those kinds of puzzles about the ongoing popularity of this genre of writing that we tried to tease out. And one interesting thing that we found was that hand in hand with this advice about adopting a passive approach to the stock market itself is conversely an insistence on adopting a very kind of speculative risk orientated daring bold mentality everywhere other than the stock market so that in your everyday life um, in your wider kind of personal developments, your your kind of self-actualization, self-realization, all of these kinds of terms that circulate in the kind of self-help uh, industry. In all of those areas, you should act like the classic risk-taking, buccaneering, decisive, speculative stock market operator. You should imagine yourself on the model of the um, archetypal confident, commanding investor. You should, so you should live your life on that kind of model. You should understand your selfhood, your subjectivity on that kind of model. But when it comes to the stock market itself, ironically, paradoxically, you should be passive. You should not rely on your own judgment or your own decision-making. You should just absolutely sit back let the experts do their thing, and then just let the market do its thing. So one of the really crucial shifts in the culture of kind of consumer investment is this real emphasis that's very prevalent now on passivity, that you, you can't beat the market, 
the professionals can very rarely beat the market. So how on earth are amateurs going to do it? Let's be realistic here. Let's not imagine we're going to be able to make these outlandish profits through these brilliantly far-sighted stock-picking strategies. Let's just be content with the general returns of the market as a whole via an index fund, because at least that can be broadly relied on over time. Which would seem to kind of strip all of the excitement out of the field of investment, all of the sense of it as a game where you take your chance and pit your wits against the professionals, but also to obviate the need for writing about this field, because the the basic advice here is very simple. But there's this way in which writers in this field have got round this problem, you might say, by continuing to offer advice on the stock market, but in this rather generic and straightforward and passive-orientated way, but then using an archetype of the stock market investor to build a whole notion of the self, a whole different version of self-help writing, which uh, lays its emphasis on a kind of risk-taking, speculative kind of mentality. So that that emphasis on the the passive mode of investing is is probably the most crucial um, shift in uh, the wider field of investment over the past few decades, and it and and we've been really interested in its again somewhat complex, ironic, paradoxical consequences for the genre of investment advice writing. What kind of research process did the authors undertake to trace the evolution of stock market advice? Well. One of the things that we did was to engage a research assistant to look at all of the books that were held in the British Library, which is a copyright library. So it has to have a copy of every book published in Britain. And then to create a massive spreadsheet of what these things were, what they were called, so that we got a sense not just of cherry picking different books from here and there, but to get a sense of how there were overarching trends. So essentially we were using the data about these books in order to work out were they, how many were, for example, technical analysis and when was the shift to fundamental analysis and how many were about women. That's one of the things that we did, but we also could drill down into a particular period so we each took a a particular section and then looked at what was the writing within that section. But also then we had numerous meetings, not just ourselves, but also with a panel of advisors to try to keep going and tease out a set of themes that were overarching through the whole time period, because 300 years, a very long time in stock market development. And yet we see these various themes emerging. So just to follow up on what you were saying, Helen, there was that crucial phase, as you were describing, of a kind of initial um, scanning of the British Library catalogue to assemble this huge bibliography of relevant titles that was performed uh, by Samantha Sam Shave, uh, who did a brilliant service for the project. And that gave us this this huge kind of database from which we were able to uh, select the text on which we were going to focus. And I think I'm right in saying, ultimately, Helen, that we actually read, that is, 
got hold of and went through cover to cover, something in the region of 300 works of investment advice, 300 stock market advice manuals. Um, and I suppose the, the quip that we've tended to wheel out is that we've read three centuries and three hundred three centuries worth and 300 texts of investment advice writing so that you don't have to, because these books are often quite dry. They're not always the most thrilling read, but then you'll suddenly be transfixed by a really kind of surprising metaphor or an interesting kind of thought experiment or a, a strange anecdote or story that the author is telling. So that it was not always a pleasure necessarily to work through quite so many books in this genre, but it certainly had its rewards in terms of these unexpected but really startling uh, moments of, of interest. And certainly I think it was necessary for us to read that kind of order of magnitude of text to really get a sense of the scope, the extent, the breadth and the persistence of this mode of writing and to really understand its conventions, its development, its multiple different forms, but also its continuity over time. Um, but it also perhaps explains why we needed five authors and five uh, dedicated researchers in order to cover all of this material. Otherwise, I think it could easily have been uh, a life's work for a single, a single person. In what ways does Invested highlight shifts in stock market advice paradigms over the centuries? I've touched on this already, but I guess central to the story that we tell in the book is the emergence and then the the fate, the um, gradual eclipse, I guess, in many ways, of these two kind of competing paradigms of investment advice. I've, I've mentioned them already, but just to recap... On the one hand, you have technical analysis. This is the mode of stock market analysis that tries to find patterns in stock market data, tries to find patterns in prices, in trading volume. And on the basis of detecting these patterns, these rhythmic recurrent cycles, it posits the future direction that the stock market is going to take. Against technical analysis is fundamental analysis. This is the mode that looks to the underlying health, the underlying soundness, the underlying profitability, the underlying prospects of a particular company and determines on that basis whether its stock is currently under or overvalued and trades in the market on that basis. And there are versions of these two kinds of modes of analysis going back into the 19th century, and they gradually, through the latter 19th, part of the 19th century and into the 20th, kind of assume a, a clear definition. They become codified, eventually huge, hundreds and hundreds of page-long textbooks dedicated to each of these com competing paradigms emerge. And by the mid-20th century, they are both very prominent, but also both very kind of entrenched as these opposing, profoundly different philosophies about how to predict 
the movements of the stock market and how to analyze it. This is complicated, though, by the fact that by this period, by the mid-20th century, the rise of financial economics as an academic discipline has begun to cast doubt on technical analysis and fundamental analysis. It's begun to cast into question both of these approaches. So on the technical side, the claim is always, well, if it's true that detecting a particular movement in a particular stock is a sure indicator that it's going to do something else in the next few days, then surely pretty soon everybody will notice this and then everybody will act on this insight, on this recognition, and that will do away with, erase the very effect that was supposed to occur. So technical analysis will always kind of undo itself because precisely in acting on the indicators that have been detected, people will invalidate the prediction. So it's always going to undercut itself or it's always going to uh, erase or undermine itself. So that would be the argument for why technical analysis doesn't work. The argument for why fundamental analysis doesn't, doesn't work is that essentially everybody and many of those people, highly resourced, highly funded, professional Wall Street experts with access to vast quantities of information, with all kinds of insider contacts. Everybody in this field is looking for information about the soundness of companies, about their future prospects, about new products that might be in the pipeline, etc., etc. So what is the likelihood that you as an ordinary person in the street are going to have a better insight into the prospects or or future profitability of a company than the expert on Wall Street? And even the experts, most of the time, don't get this right. So what hope do you have of beating the market, getting that piece of information that suddenly gives you a route to profit? So increasingly through the latter part of the 20th century, Um, academic finance experts will basically say the average person using either technical analysis or fundamental analysis just isn't going to beat the market because the market always already has incorporated all of this knowledge in the first place. And this is the idea of the efficient market, that the market always already incorporates and reflects all information. So again, we might think, okay, so what what does investment advice do now? The the experts, the academics have shown that this can't work, that these techniques can't work. So surely this is the end of the genre. Surely it's got nowhere to go. But again, the genre reinvents itself. The genre finds a way out of these kinds of double binds. So for example, in the the 1970s, a... um, finance academic named Burton Malkiel writes a book called A Random Walk Down Wall Street, which is basically um, espousing the efficient market hypothesis approach, saying the average person can't beat the market, by all means have a go, it's fun, it's a, it's a nice game, it passes the time, but don't expect you're going to make any serious profit doing it. Um, but that you, again, and this is a kind of forerunner of the imp- uh, prevalence of and the index fund that I was talking about, but it 
that you can take advantage of the market's wisdom by simply buying the market, by simply buying a portfolio that broadly reflects the market, a kind of index fund, um, and then sitting back and, and, and over the long haul letting the profits roll in. So even as these major paradigms, the technical paradigm, the fundamental paradigm, seem to have been cast into question conclusively by the academic finance economists, a representative of that group then comes out with a hugely successful investment advice guide, which is still in print today. It's been gone through multiple editions. It's still popular. So there always seems to be a way in which, even as shifting paradigms rise and fall, the investment advice genre is able to capitalise, is able to reinvent itself, is able to escape, evade what might seem to be challenges, even terminal challenges to its credibility, to its efficacy, to its respectability, its credibility, and to find new ways of launching new bestsellers onto the uh, publishing market. Any upcoming talks or seminars in the future? What are you both working on? Well, I'm going to be giving a talk about how people who don't work in history departments can work on historical subjects. But I've moved on from this book and I'm going to be doing things on agricultural riots in England in 1830 called the Swing Riots. The project that I've been working on most concertedly over the past couple of years is a monograph um, a, a book written just by myself in this case, sadly without the assistance of my four co-authors for Invested. Um, this is a book called Speculative Time, American Literature in an Age of Crisis. Uh, it's a literary focus book, although it also has a kind of broad historical remit um, that in some ways re- re- reflects the kind of um, broad historical field that we were surveying for invested. That book is um, just about finished now. I've just recently been working on the proofs and the index for it, and it's coming out with Oxford University Press in the in early in uh, 2024. And it's a book that thinks about ideas of speculation and time, temporality, crisis in relation to American literature, predominantly fiction, but also drama and poetry um, in and around New York and Chicago in the early decades of the 20th century. So it's a book shaped in, in, in some ways by my thinking and research for Invested, for this study of stock market investment advice, but with a more conventionally literary uh, focus. So bringing me back a little bit more into my comfort zone of looking at uh, novels and poems rather than um, uh, stock market investment manuals. You listened to an original podcast recording of the New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore. Our audience can thank Helen Paul, Paul Crosswaite, and the University of Chicago Press for discussing their new book, Invested, How Three Centuries of Stock Market Advice Reshaped Our Money, Markets, and Minds. Subscribe to get more episodes from the New Books Network.